Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hi, Ragulan. Really excited to have you on the show. You've promised a clear and frank perspective on the crypto and blockchain industry. So I think people are really interested in this topic, but also how you yourself ended up in the Web3 industry as well. So could you introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Ragulan Pathy. I'm based here in Singapore, have been for about 10 years now. Uh, actually, I'm originally Sri Lankan, but I uh, grew up in Australia, traveled and lived in lots of countries around the world over the last 20 years before I landed here in Singapore, lived in the UK, spent some time in the US, even spent some time in Africa and a few other places. Personally, in terms of my career, it's kind of taken a few different twists and turns. I was once a founder as well and started some companies. Early on in my career, I was doing a lot more like project management and program management with banking. Then I moved into tech and currently I'm at Circle, which is most known for USDC. But prior to this, I've been at Zoom, as well as Facebook and Amazon here in Singapore. Obviously, you started out early in your career as a founder. So talk us about that early entrepreneurial journey. My early entrepreneurial journey started when I was like seven or eight years old because my father was a businessman and he was a businessman in Sri Lanka. And we moved um, from Sri Lanka due to the Civil War to Australia. He had a business in Australia, a simple shop. Working in that shop really was where I started my sort of first elements of entrepreneurship. Now, I know that it sounds crazy because you're just seven or eight years old, but working in the shop and helping my dad do the books and count, count money and things like that was really where I started. But realistically, that meant that I had business in my blood from a very young age. And I was always writing down business ideas. Can I do this? Can I do that? Would this work? Would that not? And I find that entrepreneurs are kind of those, that type of people. It's not just about one idea that they suddenly came up with. They kind of have this instinct to like think about ideas and things that they can make a little bit of money from when they're a kid through to like much grander business ideas from when they're older, right? When I was in my 20s, I tried building Facebook for business effectively called OnShop. That was one of the businesses I tried to build and, and try to develop and didn't go too far. It was kind of pre-mobile age. It was a little bit too early. And then one of the more significant businesses I built was I actually started off as a consulting company and then later on became a private cloud that we built. And then it was an aggregation for cloud software. This was like in 2009, 2010, just before AWS really took off. Once again, it was sort of a little bit too early to market, but that business did grow to substantial $15, $20 million revenue company. And ultimately, we didn't succeed and become like a, the mega exit that we wanted. We did have to sort of like sell it to a, another company and, and sort of exit. That's a couple of examples, but I've generally also always been in, invested in startups as well and work very closely with founders as well and really will pitch into most ideas. And I'm very interested in what's new and what's coming as well. What was it like transitioning from being a founder to you know, being an executive at a larger tank company? It was interesting because you go from being having all control to basically being part of like Amazon's a very innovative company 
it's probably one of the best places for an entrepreneur or founder to go because you have a lot of freedom to do a lot of your own things, but you're still part of a larger company, a larger corporate. So that always takes a little bit of adjustment. I often hire former founders, recently just hired one as well. And I can just see that adjustment from you can kind of do whatever you want as a founder to you're part of a, a broader company machinery in some way, shape or form. So that takes a little bit of adjustment. Just in the way you communicate, in the way that you run things, the way you deal, work with others as well. So there's a lot of founders, obviously, who are going to be transitioning off their jobs, right? Because either they depart from the you know, founding teams or because they are wrapping up the chapter of their lives because they're winding down the company. But the truth is, of course, is that founding a company is really hard, right? Over 90% of the founders are going to fail, right? And they're going to transition to new roles or new startups. So what would you say are some of the challenges that you think that founders face in transitioning to, for example, uh, working at a tech company? It sounds funny, but I would say actually it's communication. You know, like if you're a founder, you can kind of communicate how the F you want because you can just tell people, do this, do that. We're going to do this idea and everyone's going to get behind it. And in a startup land, and you can kind of do that and, and get away with it, right? When you come into a company, you've got to somewhat ask for permission to get things done. You've got to convince people to come in your journey. And I think that's the biggest adjustment that I see the founders have. They have to move from like kind of telling people this is what we're going to do and people kind of accept it when you're a founder because you're the one leading the vision going in a certain way. So you have to like communicate with people and convince like lots of different stakeholders that this is what you want to do. And those stakeholders may be internal and sometimes it's customers as well. You also, for example, like might not have full control over all the things you're used to as a founder. You might be used to like pricing things just however you want. You might be able to like write up whatever legal contracts and terms that you want. You may be able to spend money on marketing dollars however you want. All these things, you suddenly have to adjust the way that a company does it. And I think that adjustment can honestly be pretty brutal for a lot of founders at the beginning. Most of them figure it out, but it's definitely an adjustment. So what advice would you give to founders for transitioning to that role? You've been that founder going through the transition and you've hired, like I said, former founders to join a team. So what advice would you give them in that transition? The advice that I would give is like, find a role that is most like being a founder. <laughs> and I actually think that like sales and business development roles are probably the most natural fit for former founders because you're kind of like driving at the front end in terms of revenue and in terms of like, actually like you get a little bit more leverage. You can kind of do a little bit more of what you want for the sake of bringing money into the company. So I think it's a bit of a softer adjustment. If you go from founder into a lot more of a traditional role, whether it's like HR or communications or marketing or operations or other things, sometimes it's not so easy. They're a little bit more fixed. If you're in a sales role or your business development role, it's creative. Things aren't so fixed. There's still a bit of discovery in terms of like how, what's the best way to do it. And that was certainly the process I went through. I went into a sales and business development role after I was a founder at Amazon. Awesome. When you see that, and you see that transition is not going well. What do you advise them to do, I guess? Because you know, someone joined marketing or wasn't the right cultural fit. Or How do you think about coaching them? Most of the founder conversations that I've seen where I've adjusted to like coming into a company, it's mostly the same conversation, which is like, stop being a dick. <laughs> because people don't have to listen to you as much in a company. But when you're a founder, founders you know, generally have a little bit of God personality to them and they can be more brutal and they can be a bit more of a dick and people will kind of forgive them for it because of the vision of where they're taking them to right so often it's like i go back to that bit about communication of like just like you need to build friends again not everyone's going to be your friend 
you need to understand that companies will have politics and companies will have structures and companies will have people that have been there longer than you. And I think that's a lot of where the coaching is for founders trying to integrate back in. Like, don't be such a rough brush coming in and like, you know, just trying to brutally like brute force your way through everything. I see a lot of like founders doing like the scorched earth method of like, I'm going to get shit done because I'm, I'm an ex-founder and I know how to get shit done, but I'm going to get shit done in the place in the company I'm going to. And that's probably why the company hired me because I'm an ex-founder and I can get shit done. But the method that they take is like this scorched earth that like doesn't matter what cost it comes, I'm going to get it done. And often that can end kind of badly because they might get the result, but they, everyone might hate them in the process and they might still find themselves, you know, getting thrown out of their company or so forth. Honestly, like from what I've seen, most founders coming in kind of screw it up <laughs> coming back in and they probably will, will get it right the second time around, maybe in the company after the company they're coming to. <laughs> Sorry, that's so funny. I think it's a natural process. I rarely see them like come into a company and it perfectly works. I think they come in, they see the things they do right and wrong, they learn a few lessons, they might go to somewhere else after a few years and then they kind of get it right. And I think part of it is that obviously, you know, you've really done a lot of these large companies, right? I would say, you know, you've been at Zoom, you've been at Facebook, you've been at AWS. So what would you say are some things to watch out for if you're joining a, like a, I would say a relatively large, I wouldn't even call it a startup these days, right? It's at the top, right? Of the tech industry. So when I've joined these companies, they've generally been quite small in Asia, right? Zoom, we had less than 10 people at the very early stage, even at AWS in Singapore, maybe 15 or 20 people in here in Singapore, right? Even at Facebook, like I was in this workplace, like new SaaS startup within Facebook, so I had very few people. And so I would say that like, Coming into a big company that's got thousands of people is kind of a little bit hard for a founder. I think most founders get frustrated because they'll just be there going, I'm just like one piece in a machinery. It's like very hard to like have impact. I think it's a hard adjustment. I think the trick is, I think, trying to find, you know, it might be a big company in, in the US, but it might be very new to Asia. I think that is a great fit for a former founder or a smaller company that may be in like a series C, D, E, but, you know, that's already started in Asia. That I think is a better fit. Honestly, I think if you're a former founder and you go into a large established company like a, a, a Google, a Microsoft, or how big Facebook, any of the fan companies, I'm not picking on any company. Like if you go to any one of them, I think it's pretty hard. I think it's a pretty hard adjustment. I think most founders would get super frustrated by, you know, just the pace at which things happen and the politics and the complexity. It, it's not a great fit for founders. You went through all the experience and then you chose to work at Circle, right? Which is, I think, you know, honestly, a stage earlier even, right? Especially when you joined, you know, stable coins was a bet and it still is a bet in many ways. Yeah. So definitely, I think it's a big jump. So what led you to say, okay, now I'm these, you know, APAC leadership roles, obviously, for these very large companies. And now I'm going to join crypto, Web3 and blockchain and stable coins and specifically Circle. So walk us through that point of view. Firstly, I try to go earlier and earlier stage with each company that I go to, right? Whenever I land at a company, the only thing I usually end up thinking is, oh, I wish I was here earlier, <laughs> right? So it doesn't matter how early you get there. Even in Circle, I was like, oh, I wish I was here a year earlier. But actually, the story of stable coins is kind of like a full circle one to me. And bear with me in the story for a few moments, right? So I was at Facebook and Facebook's obviously got like two and a half, three billion people across all of their platforms. And the most simplest of concepts today is that I can send you an email, I can send you a WhatsApp, I can send you a photo, I can't send another person money, right? 
it's just impossibly difficult. And so I think Facebook had the great, right idea in terms of like trying to combine all of their platforms into one and coming up with a stable coin where you could move money. And so anyone in the world could send money to anyone in the world. Of course, that is like really good until people realize that Facebook is the one trying to do that. And then it gets stuck in a whole bunch of government issues and regulatory and everything else. But I actually really wanted to go into that group. That was kind of where I wanted to go. But it wasn't happening. Facebook was honestly a bit of a mess when I left as a company because of Cambridge Analytica and everything else. And I saw that Zoom was this company. I started speaking to Zoom early 2019, you know, so quite a bit before the pandemic made Zoom a household name. Most people didn't know who Zoom was, but I was hearing a lot of customers talking very positively about Zoom, about Eric Yuan, about, you know, just the approach the company had towards developing things fast. And that worked out incredibly well in terms of like being the right company to pick. And then I couldn't have, I couldn't have uh, predicted a pandemic. But five years, which I had a five-year plan at Zoom, happened in like two years. And then I started thinking, you know, I, I had this thing I kept thinking about stable coins. And I saw that Circle was building a stable coin and was probably doing it the right way. So and I still have this like very fundamental belief having lived in like a lot of development like i lived in nigeria for two years i've traveled over 100 countries you know if you ask me like where do you want to go of course i like going to italy and and europe like others but i love like for these holidays i'm going to rwanda and i like going to emerging market countries right i fundamentally believe that money is not a simple thing for most people it's very very hard for like 80 percent of the world it's very simple for us here sitting in singapore i can pay now you really really simply but it's not simple for the majority of the world. And this always stuck with me traveling countries as to how hard money is in so many different ways. Like it's hard to have the security of money, like having your money in a bank account is really hard. It's hard to know that your currency is going to be stable, you know, because a lot of countries are depreciating currencies, right? It's really hard to know that someone's not going to come and take your money or, or force you to pay a bribe or something else, you know, for the security of your money if you're making a lot of money, right? So a lot of things about money, which is not really easy. And at the very, very simplest, it's the analogy I always gave is like, if you and I, Jeremy, are in a bar in Jakarta and we have a bill for $200 and we're from different countries, I can't split that bill with you. I should be able to WhatsApp you that money or send it to you, you know, as simple as sending your WhatsApp, right? So I think this is just fundamentally a huge problem that needs to be solved for the world. And I think as you see the evolution of web one to web two to web three, initially it was about speeding up like literal mail into email. Then it was about communicating much faster in a much more social media way. And now I think web three is really about transacting value, about moving value, whether it's money or goods through NFTs or many other things, like transacting value is really the core of web three in the way that I think about it. So I was thinking about this and then I started speaking to some people at Circle and it, honestly, it was like all of my jobs that I've had, the last four jobs, I've never applied for a job. I've approached someone to have a discussion and that discussion has taken between two months to nine months with that company. And then we've decided it's the right place to be because I really believe in what the company's doing. And then the role kind of comes afterwards. And that was the same with Circle, with Zoom, with Facebook, even with Amazon as well. Amazon, originally I went to because I built a company and it didn't work. So I went to Amazon and said, well, okay, I give in, like I'll come work for you guys instead <laughs> because you guys know how to do it. So, but yeah, coming back to Circle, I just fundamentally think that money is broken. It needs to be unbroken for the world economy, especially for the people in developing countries. And I think we just have a huge opportunity 
a circle to do that. And I think we've got a very, very good chance in doing that for the people. But even if we don't, I think we're lighting an industry under fire that whether it's us or somebody else will provide the infrastructure so that people can have more surety in terms of the way that they have money and transact value much easier as well. I understand, obviously, why you chose to work at a company. And there's obviously a big bullish sentiment, right? Years ago, you've all the way till, I would say, six months ago. I think the six months since then, we've seen a lot of turbulence of crypto. And I think we've definitely turned into bearish sentiment, especially as of today's recording, FTX was arrested, right? Right after claiming several hours ago, things that he probably would not get arrested. So what do you think about what the outlook is on the industry and what it means for any operators and builders? The great thing about gray hairs is that you can think a little bit more long-term. I'm not super old, but I'm lucky enough to have been through the dot-com boom and bust, through the financial crisis boom and bust. Now we have this very, very long-run bull market. The way that I think about it is like SBF, when the last financial crisis happened, I think he was like 15 or 16 years old. And since then, we've pretty much had a bull market. It started slowly at first and then it basically kept going very, very fast. So to me, I just think of like the evolution of technologies. And I think of this just like no different to the bust after the 2000s. You had this like huge run up, this bubble, and I call these like necessary bubbles because the bubble brings in lots of developers, lots of investment into like an unknown technology. In the 2000 bubble, it was like every shop was going to go online. Guess what? Malls are doing pretty well still, right? But that meant there was a lot of infrastructure built. Infrastructure was built and that paved the way for a lot of the new businesses to be built afterwards. The, I mean, Google was already born, but you know, Google is a substantially bigger company today. But companies like Facebook weren't born, YouTube wasn't born, WhatsApp wasn't born. These were all born in the years after that bust. And I think of that exactly the same way with what's happening with Web3. You know, a bust is never really fun, but what's going to happen is that exactly the same thing that happened with dot-com boom, that you had probably 90 or 95% or maybe even 98% of companies go away um, with flaky business models, with speculative sort of uh, views on things. But it's going to leave all these people who've worked at companies and tried ideas and failed, and they come back and they're going to try new ideas because they've been sucked in into the bubble. I don't know anyone in crypto who's quitting crypto. They may have lost their job. They may have been in a company that blew up. They may have been, I don't hear about anyone going, you know what, crypto is shit and I'm quitting and I'm going somewhere else, right? What I feel is they're just gonna go and try something else because they've now understood the value of what can happen. And I think the real magic is gonna happen in the next few years. So to answer your question, I think there's no better time to be building it's going to be a little bit quiet, perhaps, for a couple of years because there's not going to be tons of VC money. There's not going to be so much noise around like big valuations and big use cases. But what we'll find ourselves, if I was a betting person based upon history, is in three or four years' time, or maybe it's six to eight years' time, you're going to see some really significant companies doing things that of significant value to people. And suddenly they're going to be like, people are going to be like, overnight success. And actually, they were born about now, probably. You say real magic, right, in the future. And it feels like the real magic for a while was you know, the exchanges and investing and higher returns. I think that's the headlines, right? So what do you think is the real magic? I mean, even today for stable coins, it's still very much like, okay, you know, we're paralleling real world utility with that twin. So what do you see as the real magic? Firstly, I think the growth of exchanges and it's kind of like upside down, right? Because it's like, if the biggest thing is like trading and exchanges, 
you're basically trading value that hasn't been created yet. It's like you're almost like creating artificial value, trading it, as opposed to like building great companies, getting them listed on exchanges or their tokens listed on exchanges, and then that you know trading becomes interesting. Somehow that got brought to the very front. Firstly, crypto is quite broad. There's a lot of use cases. Like I just look at the team that I manage and think about all the different use cases. But I think there is a lot that is going to be very, very interesting in the gaming ecosystem for gamers. I'm not a gamer myself, but I think for the gaming ecosystem, there's going to be a lot in terms of like NFTs and in terms of value created for gamers. So there's that segment. Then I think there is just generally building a new financial system, being able to move money around much easier. I think from a very macroeconomic point of view, like the world fundamentally, if you look back 20 years ago, mostly traded goods, whether it's commodities, whether it's goods that were made, that's what was trading. The world is now largely a service economy. And the only thing that dictates and separates you know, how much you can earn is kind of where you're born or where you live. In Singapore, I can earn a lot more in a service role than I can just 30 kilometers across the border in Malaysia, even much less if I just go one hour flight away to, to Ho Chi Minh. But the world service economy is becoming global. And the service economy is the majority of the global economy in the future. And I think fundamentally, if the world economy is a service economy, and it can be run from nearly anywhere in the world because of the internet, then you're going to have to have a whole new financial system that will support this economy. And that hasn't been built. Realistically, what we've been doing with, with payment companies and a lot of the fintechs is what I call lipstick on a pig. We've taken you know, current systems, we've made it simpler for a, a developer to code and so forth. But we haven't like fundamentally tried to change, you know, how value is transacted, whether it's like money is actually moved, whether it's like value captured in NFT or others. And I think like that growth of the service economy becoming the major part of the economy, the fact that the service economy is completely global and can be completely remote, and the fact that that economy needs to trade with each other and needs means to trade with each other, that is where I think a lot of the magic in Web3 is going to actually happen, whether it's moving money or other things. So it sounds like replacing the financial system is the approach, but does the value accrue, I mean, for example, to the incumbent players who already have you know, regulator approval and you know, the relationship to the US you know, finance system? Does the value accrue to up-and-coming folks or does it accrue to nobody? Because you know, it feels like everybody in crypto is very much like, effectively moving to zero fees, right? <laughs> you know, it feels like a race to the bottom. It feels like low cost airlines, you know, kind of competing with each other and duking it out. So how do you see the value, I think, uh, moving around the industry? It's a good question because the cost of crypto, which is one of its great promises, is very, very low comparatively. And I think the question around like, how do you create a business model to like extract that value is a very good question um, because fundamentally like crypto's promise is like reducing the tax that's currently paid if you move money between countries you know between 0.5 to 3 percent tax you're paying right if you're using credit cards you're paying a tax every time you move money most of the time you're paying some sort of tax right so the presumption is that that tax was going to go to nearly zero through web3 technologies you know how do you actually make money from it i guess there is interesting but if you look a bit deeper there is within crypto and Web3, the opportunity for players to make money, it may be on a, on a much smaller fractional percentage, but the volumes are also significantly much bigger as well. I still think there is going to be opportunity to, to capture value, but I don't know that we know perfectly exactly where that is going to be. I don't think we know that 
who is going to be the Google, who is going to apply the Google tax. Like whatever online business you create, you're going to pay the Google and Facebook tax of the advertising that you've got to pay to them to get off the ground. I think their combined revenues are well north of $100 billion, right? And that's a very well-known tax within the internet economy that you've got to pay. I don't know if we know what that is for Web3. Or, I don't know, crazy idea, maybe it won't accrue to just one person. Maybe it'll accrue much more evenly to a lot more people. It will be, as Web3 promises, more decentralized than centralized. There'll be more people getting it in smaller chunks rather than a few companies getting a very large proportion of it today. Awesome. Could you share with us about a time that you personally have been brave? I like to think I'm always quite brave. (laughs) But the biggest philosophy that I have in life is that you need to disrupt yourself before you get disrupted. It doesn't sit very well with people because people don't like change fundamentally, right? So for me, I was born in Sri Lanka. I moved to Adelaide with my parents, which is like the fifth or sixth biggest city in, in Australia. Has really no tech industry, no finance industry or anything else. I was in university and I was super bored and I was like 2000, the middle of a dot-com boom. So yeah, my dad had a cousin who had like a tech training business. I was studying accounting and I just made the decision to like leave third year uni and like fly over there to like learn Unix programming, which most of my friends, you know, when I was like 20 years old thought it was completely crazy because like now people leave Australia and go to America. This is like 20 years ago. Like people don't just sort of get up and go to New York, like no money in their pocket. So for me, that was like, everyone thought I was crazy and everything was stupid. And then I was there for a little while, then I went to the UK. And then, you know, I remember I was like snowboarding on in France just on a holiday when I was living in the UK. So I was 22 at the time. And my phone rings, I'm on top of this hill. And then this like uh, recruitment agency says, hey, look, we've got this like job in Nigeria. Would you like to go and work in Nigeria? And I was like, sure, like what's the job? And I was basically building data centers for a new telco um, called MTN, which is now one of the largest emerging market telcos in Nigeria. I was just like, you know what, fuck it, I'm going to go, <laughs> right? And I went down and, and once again, people thought I was crazy. And I've just consistently kind of done that, a lot, especially a lot through my 20s, where like I don't really think about it too much and I just kind of like go for it. Of course, when you get a bit older, you, get, you assess your risk a little bit more and you think it through a bit more. But I'm always like of the opinion that, especially when you're below 35, you should be like super brave. Like you should just go for it. What's the worst thing that's going to happen? You're going to like lose some money. You're going to be a bit further behind in your career, but you're just going to learn so much in terms of lessons, right? So I like to think I'm all, I've been super brave in terms of like moving countries. You know, very often, I, especially in my 20s, I move countries maybe five or six times and each time kind of on a whim. But on the question of bravery, like I'm 42 now. So I do sometimes look at myself and think, I wish I was a bit more brave because with age, what happens is you become slightly less brave. You become slightly more considered in your approach. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's not a good thing. But that's why I think if you're a founder and you're in your 20s, even if it doesn't work out and the majority of your business is not going to work out, just fucking go for it. <laughs> because Just be brave. Like what you're going to lose is so little in terms of like in the long run, but what you're going to gain in terms of experience, in terms of like the harsh realities of life, building a business is just so powerful and I could just couldn't recommend it more like don't get caught into this cycle of like what your friends are doing or how they're building their S&P 500 portfolio because it doesn't matter you can make all that money back if it doesn't work right but be brave and like give it a crack and fail and be willing to fail 
over and over again because eventually it ends you up in the right place. You did do that, right? You did go for it by being a founder several times in your 20s and 30s. So do you feel like you learned from it? Do you feel like you you went hard enough for it? Do you feel like you learned from your experience? Yeah, I, I did. And look, everyone has different life circumstances. And, you know, I was also having this debate with somebody on LinkedIn today. Like, you know, if I was born into a perfect family, I have, I have lovingly great parents, but we, I just wasn't, I made all my money myself and, and it came from nothing, basically. So, you know, if I had a complete safety net of parents I could fall back onto. I think in Asia, we have this obligation of like looking after our parents and helping them out. And we have different sort of like obligations when we're trying to be brave, right? Compared to people who don't have those sort of family obligations. But to answer your question, have I been brave enough? I don't think I'm done being brave. I think there's still time. And I don't discount becoming a founder in the future. I think I've got a long time at Circle, but maybe after this or maybe after the next role, maybe it's time to go at it again. And, and I would go back at it with all the lessons that I've learned from my early bravery, I guess, versus like if I hadn't been brave, if I hadn't given those things a crack, even though it didn't make me into worth hundreds of millions of dollars or a billionaire or anything like that, like I don't think I would have those scars or those lessons to be even thinking about it. Like if I had just worked in a job my whole life, Firstly, I don't think I would have got to the position I have if I just worked in a job my whole life. I think going and being a founder actually gave me the opportunity to kind of get to where I am. But secondly, I don't think like people, if they don't give it a crack when they're young, I don't think many people wake up when they're like 40 years old and think, oh, for the first time in my life, I'm going to go and start a business. I just don't see that very often. I think people give it a crack early and if it doesn't work, they'll come back and, and give it a crack later. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I love to paraphrase the three big themes I got from the show. And the first, of course, is thank you so much for sharing about, you know, your personal transition, but also your observations of how founders transition to becoming an executive at you know, a large tech company or medium-sized tech company. And I thought you had some good advice on how you would advise folks to not be scotch earth, but be thoughtful about how they approach friendships and relationships and alliances to get stuff done in the companies. The second, of course, is thank you for sharing your point of view on the blockchain industry and you know, you have a longer view that this has happened before, uh, it's happened now and it will happen again. And you're looking to build over long term, then you still believe that there is some fundamental magic that will continue to be built. Although the jury is still out. Aha, the jury is still out. <laughs> um, on uh, where the value accretes within the industry across incumbents or to single players or to multiple players. Yeah. Lastly, thank you so much for sharing about your advice to go for it, about your thoughts and regrets and point of view on being more aggressive while you're young and then, you know, being realistic that you're probably not going to be that aggressive again in the future. So might as well go for it while you can. Yeah. So uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. No problems. And I think just one thing I would say, and this might come back to haunt me, but people are going to say that like, what's going to happen with crypto? Is it dead? And I'm just telling you that to me, crypto... Uh, and the Web3 industry is an absolute no-brainer. Today, people may be getting distracted with generative AI and a whole bunch of other things. But if you're going to be a builder, go and build now. Because to me, from my experience, this is going to be an absolute no-brainer of where to be. And this lull time where people don't are not so hyped about it is just the best time to be building without distractions. So I'll leave you with that. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with 
other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave.